0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In the 30th edition of Inside the Sports Car Paddock, this time we have what I believe is a mighty fine gem. We're starting off, as usual, with our friend Jeff Brown, Race Engineer Supreme, coming off the conclusion of the Core Autosport Nissan Roke DPI program in IMSA. And with the Nissan gone, sold to a vintage Racer, We will not be seeing the car back in IMSA next year. With Jeff moving on as well, knowing that the Nissan DPI, built by Ligier has moved on as well, decided to crack open an interesting topic, that being the car's shortcomings, of which there were many. Something that you can only do, really, when you're no longer working with a car, and that car is no longer in the series. So that's what we've done here, Jeff. Definitely known for someone with a very sharp eye for a car's needs, wants, everything it requires to go quickly, makes it very easy to chronicle the things that didn't quite get there to allow that to happen. And that's the conversation we have here. So while we always open the show with something involving Jeff and I, something technical, something engineering related, this is a little uh, forensic, forensic e. Dive into the Nissan DPI. What kept it from being a true, consistent contender for a championship in its brief three year run in IMSA? Then we follow with a mighty fun gentleman, Gerard Naveau, the man, the CEO of the FIA World Endurance Championship, getting into a number of interviews here on this week's show, captured by Stephen Kilby, the Young Jedi of DailySportsCar.com following Gerard this is all stemming from interviews placed last weekend at the Bahrain WC event following Gerard we have Zach Brown McLaren Racing CEO co-owner of the United Autosports team great success last weekend then we move into Porsche GT Team Principal Pascal Zerlinden really enjoy Pascal quite a bit then we close with His counterpart at Aston Martin, John Gaw, Aston Martin Racing. They also, a mighty fine weekend. So, all together, we start off with Jeff, move to Gerard, then head over to Zach, Pascal, and close with John. Here, 31st, and I believe the final episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock for 2019. All brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Look forward to crafting some new episodes. Once we get into the new year. And if this is your first time listening to the Marshall Pruitt podcast, please pay a visit to podcast.com where we have all 700 plus episodes waiting for your perusal and every known way to subscribe. All right, let's get going with our guests as we say farewell to a pretty amazing year of sports car racing and this fun new show that I'm really glad we kicked off and look forward to bringing back as soon as possible in 2020, all courtesy of the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires. Holy cow. It is the middle of December. (laughs) I have my pal Jeff Brown on the line, and for the first time in about three months, we're recording a new segment for Inside the Sports Car Paddock, our
1: 30th episode, Jeff. How are you? 30. 30. I'm doing awesome. I'm yeah, there's nothing like the PRI show in Indianapolis, which I'm at right now. Just finished up the show here the third day to get uh, the juices flowing to go racing again. And now getting, getting to talk to you, it's like, holy moly, this is like the most excitement I've had in since we last talked, I guess. Oh, so I'm ready. I
0: love it when you <laughs> lie to me. So we've had many folks complain, rightfully so. That's a good thing. Hey, Pruitt, where's the... The Jeff Brown Educational Weekly Insert. And so we got it. But before we get to this week's topic, also had many questions about where is our pal Jeff Brown going to be found in a motor racing paddock or two next season, knowing that the core autosport Nissan on-road DPI program has shut down, cars gone to a new home. So that program is shut down for you. Do you have a definitive answer on where you'll be here, or is that still something you're working on?
1: Still, still working on it a little bit. Um, fortunately, uh, the phone has rung a few times, which is which is flattering and nice to know. But um, I haven't decided exactly what to do yet. Um, I've been super spoiled by Core and getting to run Colin uh, the last four years and. Um, it's, I realize it's going to be hard to find a job that's as uh, rewarding and, and as fun as that. But um, there's some things out there that I'm looking at and I haven't decided completely yet. But uh, I can't not be at a racetrack. I will be doing Ferrari Challenge with my guy, Mike Watt, who I've done the last three years. Uh, that's a fun and interesting program uh, there at Ferrari Challenge. So that, that's for sure. And then Um, I'll, I'll just kind of look at what these other offers are and what, uh, seems, seems the most interesting, something fun, exciting, new, something like that. So, um, keeping my options open and, uh, but, um, I'm only marginally good at race engineering, and I'm terrible at every, at anything else. So um, if I want to stay alive, i got to be at a racetrack next year.
0: Not true. You're, you're good at making talented children, you and your wife, so that's one thing. That's proven. <laughs>
1: okay. uh,
0: you. You're excellent at riding a bicycle. We know that.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, uh, you are a, a master maker of coffee, another talent. Um, I don't know how you get paid to ride bicycles and make coffee in a paddock, but, you know, um, we're open to new ideas here.
1: I am actually selling coffee. Can you believe that? What? Yeah, Yeah, you can go on. uh, Okay, can I give a plug? Please. Please. Not properly. I need to buy some. Okay, you can go on um, eBay, and I started this little, well, it's not really a store, but a page. It's Mesa Vista Coffee. And that's, uh, I've been roasting coffee because I'm roasting coffee. And friends of mine at the racetracks keep saying, you know, I've been giving them coffee and they love it. And they're like, oh, I just feel so bad having to ask you to send me coffee. Why don't you put it up so I can at least buy some, pay you a little bit so I don't feel guilty about asking you for free coffee. So I did that. And we'll see. I I put this thing up there where, hey, I'll roast coffee when I get time, when I feel like it, you may have to wait two weeks or three weeks or a month until I get around to it. But if you really want it, put in an order and I'll ship it to you. So I
0: love it. Anyway. Mesa Vista coffee. Yeah. Mesa the, Vista coffee on the eBay. ebays. Brilliant. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, I thought it might be fun since we have had some time, uh, transpire between our last episode that was captured. I think between the Monterey IMSA round and the season finale at Petit Le Mans, Mm -hmm. swan song for the core team in your nissan on-rope dpi i thought it might be interesting jeff to get into some of the challenges of engineering that nissan dpi and i say that word challenges (laughs) knowing my respect for you has been in place for decades since i first got a chance to work with you and see your engineering skills But of the many things that have added layers to that respect, it was watching you as an independent team, independent engineer, not the Extreme Speed Motorsports program, uh, which commissioned the car. And I realized that they had to do the vast majority of it themselves. But there was a pretty strong tie-in with Liget, at least. You guys, definitely one car, very independent team you're having to get very creative and draw from all your experience to try and open very narrow setup windows and extract performance from a car that just truly was not helping you a whole ton at all times to make that possible. So I thought maybe it'd be fun to explore, again, just from my appreciation of what you had to do to try and make that car go quickly as a privateer entrant with John Bennett's Core Sport team. Some of the things that you found most challenging about the car and had to overcome.
1: Yeah, well, it it was challenging and 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 kind of a little backstory, so people understand why it was challenging. I think is that in 2018, the DPI class was somewhat pegged to the performance of an LMP2 car, and it got to the point where as would happen in any anything one of the cars in dpi was the most underperforming and at that time in 2018 it was the mazda and so they 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 being imsa uh, raised the performance level of the dpi cars through the year to meet basically the core lmp2 car because that was the The target, And as we got a little bit better at core with our LMP2 and got quicker, they were able to raise the performance of the DPI cars to stay with the performance of LMP2. And that was their stated goal, make DPIs match LMP2 because they were competing in the same class. Well, at one point in 18, the Mazda became unable to perform any higher. So they kind of stopped the development of the DPI class at that point. Then over the winter between 18 and 19, IMSA said to Mazda, do whatever, well, whatever, do things to your car and we'll allow it, we'll allow a rehomologation of the Mazda to increase its performance. And Multimatic went and did their magic like they always do and made the car quite a bit better between 18 and 19. So now IMSA was able to raise the performance level of the DPI's even faster, maybe another second, second and a half. And what happened in that case is the Nissan now became the car that was flat out, everything it had, nothing in reserve, and could barely stay at the bottom of the DPI performance level. And that's what we got. That's what we finally realized about Sebring time is you know, other teams are like, people are, oh, they're hiding their performance for DPI and they're, or for BOP, they're hiding it. So they're not showing everything they got. And we were, with our Nissan, we were flat out as fast as we could go. There was nothing left with that car. Every practice, every qualifying, every race, it's all we had to try to keep up. And we were still the fourth best performing car. So that's the background. So we needed to, we did everything we could to try to make this car, car quicker. And what, you know, what areas w- was that? Mostly it was weight. Mm. Um, we, the minimum weight was 940 kilos and that's without driver or fuel. And we weighed nine hundred and forty five kilos with no ballast in the car and to put that in perspective the year before with our orica lmp2 car it was a nine hundred and ten kilo minimum and we had 70 kilos seven zero kilos of ballast to make nine ten and so a lot of the dpis maybe Uh aren't quite yeah they aren't quite that light, but they were. They had ballast that they could move, and weight distribution is a huge thing in in prototype racing. Um, where you have the weight placed, how much is on the front axle, how much on the rear axle, and we had no adjustment in that with the Nissan. We had not only couldn't we adjust it, we couldn't even make the minimum weight. So then. When we underperformed because the class had been moved up in performance and we couldn't reach that level, typically what IMSA would tell an underperforming car is, all right, well, for the next race, you can take weight out. And they do a, they do a performance analysis after every race. IMSA does very uh, – it's like an algorithm that all the data gets put in. It all falls out the bottom, and it says to balance the cars – this car needs this much weight off, and this one needs this much more power, and this one needs this different aerodynamics, and it comes out with what the recommendation is to balance them. Well, we were, every race, Our the recommendation for the Nissan was in the range of 40 to 50 kilos lighter is what we needed to be to keep up. We couldn't do that. There was just physically, we didn't have ballast in the car. We couldn't take any out. And... As most I think listeners know, making race car components lighter is pretty expensive. And frankly, outside the homologation. We you know, we had a homologated gearbox, for instance. We couldn't change it. It's we couldn't put a lighter one in if even if we wanted to, because it was homologated that way and and illegal. So weight was one of the things we had there we had to deal with that Nissan engine makes a lot of power, but is a true GT three engine out of the GTR. Yeah. And so it's, it's a production based true GT three engine, heavy intake manifold, high CG heavy engine, and without having any ballast available to move to the front of the car to try to get the weight distribution better, we suffered with a high, heavy rear uh, car. And so entry stability was a problem all the time. Uh, the car rolling over uh, on the entry to corners at the rear and then wanting to snap was a problem. So we went through, you know, shocks and springs and all the things you try to try to do to minimize those effects but the physics and the architecture of the car are such that there you are I mean you can't really quote solve it you can you can try to help it but that was one of the things that you know that was primarily primarily the biggest biggest thing we we suffered with and there were some other things we can get into if you want to, the aerodynamic stuff. and
0: Let's do it. All of that. I mean, this all is right. the, how's this? Some of these things might sound like excuses, but they weren't. And if we also take into account the fact that ESM truly was responsible for developing the majority of the car on their own. And they had a number of issues when it showed up for the very first test what was it, the middle of December 2016, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. I believe there was that uh, debut test. I mean, they went through a variety of items there, uh, trying to get cooling to things, reprofiling right. bodywork, different intercoolers, different all kinds of stuff, just saying that the arrival of the car compared to the timeline for its arrival compared to Cadillac and Mazda, was late, unfortunately, and did not have the might of a major auto manufacturer to make the car good. Uh, You had a highly skilled and well-budgeted privateer team. So you look at just its starting point, and it certainly had an uphill battle. Got to a point where it was very impressive, but as you noted, as some of the other cars struggled and, and reached their performance peak, Come 2018, uh, certainly the only way to help the Mazda in particular was to saddle some of the other vehicles. And when you have a car like the Nissan with a motor that was certainly not optimized and uh, some other weight issues too, well, throwing weight at it's only going to exacerbate the problem.
1: Right. Yeah. This, we the, the, And the Mazda, when it was rehomologated for 2019 – Became a great car, easy to balance if it was because it, it could unleash It could outperform the 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 baseline. All the cars, the Acura could do the same. The Cadillac was eh, maybe not quite as perf- much performance in hand, but you could make it go a little quicker by taking some weight off, and you could still move the Cadillac around a little bit. Uh, the Nissan, we were just as they moved the performance level up, it just. That's it. That's all we could do. And and really, as you pointed out, the two teams to work with the Nissan were privateer teams with no factory support. You know, ESM did a great job taking a car from, as you said, from the start to where they got it. And, you know, I'd like to think we did a good job as well. But again, we were both independent privateer teams with no support from the factory. And, and we've said that often. Uh, I need to interject this we've said that often about nissan uh, no support from the factory and nissan didn't support it and every i hope people understand that that wasn't a failure of nissan and we're like oh nissan said they were going to do all that this was stuff never the deal they, they were, they they were never, hired
0: they were a service exactly, provider uh exactly. and per IMSA's requirements a manufacturer name must be associated with a dpi So with what ESM, with what Ed Brown and Scott Sharp commissioned, they got motors and the stylized bodywork. I would say most importantly, they got the Nissan name they could put on the cars, therefore qualifying to be able to run a DPI. Nissan never agreed and was frankly never interested in spending money to see its name represented in DPI.
1: Exactly. They never... Uh, They've done, and and for us, uh, they actually did more than I would have expected for a company that was basically just supplying motors to us. You know, we bought, leased whatever the motors from them. We paid them a check. They sent the motors, and they they went over and above what you would expect from a manufacturer who just did that. Uh, You know, they they sent a, a representative to every race. And he wasn't a technical representative, but we had a guy there from at every race who uh, didn't really need to be there. And they, they had a little bit of an interest, but never once did they promise to do anything other than supply us engines, and we pay, pay them for that supply. So, but the cold, hard facts are Acura has a team of engineers, chassis people, engine simulation, shaker rigs, wind tunnels. All of that to help their their customer, Penske. Mazda has the same with Multimatic, and Cadillac has the same with Pratt and Miller. And those there's some big engineering might behind those three, and us as the Nissan team had had none of that. And I'm not complaining. It's just that's that's the facts. Now, Ligier tried. I mean, they did a great job. Uh, Max Crawford and um, And his guys did, you know, did amazing job. Chris Lowe was at every race with us and trying to work with the factory to try to make improvements within the homologation to make improvements to the car and understand it. And um, but we were we were up against physics, you know, with the weight situation aerodynamically, the car, the car was. Uh, it was really lacked in efficiency. We could make some pretty good downforce, but then the car would be pretty draggy and we could make the car relatively slippery, but then it would have no downforce. So, you know, it needed some help there uh, aerodynamically. And I think to be honest, and I think Ligier would admit this as well, that's, where their LMP2 car suffered and why Orica is now the clear cut favorite in LMP2. Um, So that, you know, we, we got some of that legacy from, from the LMP2, the lack of efficiency aerodynamically with the LJ that we, we were up against as well. And then reliability again, as a result of the increase of performance, of the DPI class.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I need a I got just got to let this go. I just got a <laughs> little <laughs> a little laugh break here. Other than excessive weight poor aerodynamic <laughs> efficiency and shoddy reliability. Man, this was a world beater. Oh, I mean, I'm telling you, the, the, you're making the Nissan on DPI sound like me in prototype form, unfortunately. So
1: yeah, ah, and, and I, I probably, oh, well, maybe I'm not overstating it. No, but,
0: I mean, how's how's this, Jeff? You know, we tell the truth here. We're not being, yep. how's this? We're not being critical if we right. were just saying mean things or bad things. And that I don't think that would be fair. We're speaking fact, right? Obviously, if this car won a championship or was, you know, something that was always in the hunt, then you would say, all right, well, I don't quite understand where you're coming from. The reality is while the car did win a number of races, often when, you know, BOP was in a pretty darn good place for it and a lot of things were optimal. But the and then truth- the
1: goalposts were closer Yep, because the, the rules hadn't moved the goalpost further away. So, yeah, it's – think about the car and what it was built – you know, what concept it was built under. It was built under a – the Ligier LMP Ducar was built under a cost cap formula to start out with. The Nissan was a GT3 engine. The concept was started in, as you said, 2016, and now we're in 2019 with the performance. I haven't gone back and looked at what lap times were in 2016 compared to 2019, but they're three or four seconds a lap on average faster than they were then. The gearbox was designed in our Nissan to take, let's say, 500 horsepower, and now we're putting 650 through it.
0: Yeah, it was even a problem early on and right. had to be modified to keep up and I mean I do recall there was a request at some point to rehomologate using an entirely different uh gearbox manufacturer which I yes. think was denied. I don't I I'll admit it's fallen out of my brain, but yeah. So the
1: story the story there is it has a Hewland gearbox in it and most of the other sports cars, run X-Tracks. The Hewland was undersized for what we were trying to do with it, and we had gearbox failures, input shafts, and we our mechanics had to change and put a brand-new input shaft in uh, virtually every night. We'd run Friday, brand-new in- input shaft for Saturday. We would run Saturday, brand-new input shaft for oh, the race. That's brutal. Yeah, so split the car every night to put a new input shaft in it. And, and, and again, Hewland, no fault of really of theirs. I think we were on shaft design number six by the end of the year. They're trying to make it, but it was too small. You know, it was, it needed the next size Hewland or it needed an X track. It was just too small. And so we fought that. And the way I understand it, before we even got the car, they, as in Ligier, asked for a, the ability to put an x Track gearbox in it. And IMSA slash FIA said, you can do that. But then because it changes the homologation of the Ligier P2, which is linked to the DPI, you must change then every Ligier LMP2 running worldwide to x You can have mm. one or the other, but you can't have them both. Well, they couldn't ask all like the United Autosports Ligiers running in WEC and ELMS to all change their gearboxes just because the American team needs a stronger gearbox. So it couldn't be done. Well, then this year, at one point, IMSA said, yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, we'll, we'll do a separate homologation on DPI cars only. You can do it to just the DPI. Don't have to change anything else. Go ahead. But that was like June of this year, and that is not something you just – it's not like you just bolt in an extract. It takes a whole redesign of the rear suspension, the bodywork attachment points, the, the floor, bell housing, does, the floor. Does it fit within? Yeah. Exactly. That's a huge project and expensive and something you can't do mid-season. It would be a relatively big undertaking to do between the end of – You know, if you started in August to have it done ready for the roar, it would be a a relatively big undertaking. So we couldn't, you know, we couldn't do that either. So at one point when IMSA could, IMSA not struggled, it was impossible for them to balance us correctly. Their numbers would fall out of the of their analysis and they would say, "Okay, Nissan needs 45 kilos off of it you guys can take 45 kilos off if you want. We don't have 45 kilos to take off. Okay, well, sorry. There you go. will see you next weekend. And that was pretty much continuous through the whole year. We just couldn't reach the performance BOP goals that IMSA thought we should have. We just physically, physics wouldn't allow it. And, and we, had, we had asked at times, Okay, well, if we can't take 45 kilos off and you need to balance the class, then you need to add 45 kilos to everybody else. You know, bring them, down to, bring them down to us like they had done with the Mazda in 2018. Keep, You know, bring the performance of the class down to reach that level. Problem there was most of the other cars, I think the Galara Cadillac primarily, when they do the FIA crash test to homologate the crash structure, it's in a range of weights from, let's say, 910 kilos to 940 kilos. And it's certified for those those weights. Well, they couldn't add more weight to the Cadillac because it would be outside the structural integrity at that weight of the crash structure. So it wasn't just a matter of, well, we can't take weight off the Nissan. Let's just add it to everybody else because then all those cars would be outside the safety regulations.
0: This is fascinating, Jeff. And again, for those who followed closely with DPI, wondered why the Nissan seemed to trend downward a little bit. Uh, Lots of things, lots of things here, lots of constraints to work against that go beyond the normal constraints a race engineer development engineer could overcome
1: yes and and it's it's really weird i I wish i could like jump up and down and i don't know blame or point fingers like oh IMSA was uh, they didn't do no IMSA did what can they do i mean they say yeah you should have 45 kilos off your car we want to balance you uh but you can't take 45 kilos off and we can't add it to the other car cars and uh, we'll give you more power so they did that. And then we were for sure the fastest car in a straight line and we had more power than everybody else. A dragster and, and, that also needed to be fed more often. Right, and then, then you got to stop this thing at the end of every, uh, straight away. And then you have this heavy car that uses up the tires quicker and then you burn more fuel. So they said this actually happened. They said, okay, now you've got lots of power now after a couple power increases and what IMSA tries to do is make sure that the fuel range as in laps or minutes is equal for all the cars. So a a little Mazda that doesn't burn as much fuel might have a 70 liter fuel tank and our Nissan might have an 85 liter fuel tank. We both run 40 minutes on a tank of gas and that's all (laughs) they really care, but we're burning a ton, they're burning less. So now what happens is, our car is much more affected in performance over the stint, over a run stint because we're, our, the weight of our car is changing much more than theirs. So we're horrible when it's super heavy on, cause the cars are weighed with no fuel in them. So when we start our car full on fuel, we're way heavier than everybody else and just murdering our tires where they're not. So, oh, there's all these knock on effects. And I mean, I you can't blame Nissan. They did everything. They went above and beyond. Ligier worked their butt off to try to help us do anything we could. They were, Max Crawford was like, whatever you want, we'll do. And to his detriment, Max was spending money that he probably, you know, Max is Crawford's a racer. And he's like, oh, I want to see my car do better. What can we do? And they helped out a lot. Chris Lowe at, at Crawford's was just there every race doing whatever he could to help. And and, and IMSA was, you know, I, I'd i like to blame IMSA. Well, they did a terrible job on BOP. Um, you know, yeah, we wish they could have done better, but I don't know what they could have done better. We were just – so what happened was, to bring it all to a kind of an end here, is IMSA said to us, basically – I think what they said to Mazda at the end of 18, they said, look, do whatever you need to your car, get the performance up, make the performance better than what the class standard is right now, and then we can take power away and weight away and whatever to balance you back to everybody else. And now here comes the rub again. Great. But we don't, but who's going to pay for that? Yeah. Nissan's not going to pay for it because they. They shouldn't because it's not part of their program. It's not what they want to do. They don't gain anything other than selling us engines. So, Nissan obviously wasn't interested and shouldn't be. We don't think that's not a knock on them. They they shouldn't they shouldn't do it. Ligier, are they going to spend a couple million dollars to redesign this whole car and get you know make the Nissan engine lighter and get the weight down and do all the things? No, because how many examples of this car are they going to sell? One, just the core. And then John Bennett, so he's the next guy, is John Bennett, the owner of Core, supposed to spend all this money on development? And as John said to me, he goes, I'm a little business compared to factories, I'm a little independent businessman from Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I'm supposed to do a development program so that I can compete with the Acura factory, the Mazda factory, and General Motors. <laughs> I'm never going to compete with those guys on an on a engineering front. I'm not going to spend the money to go redevelop that car. And so that's why we don't have a Nissan in DPI for 2020.
0: And also why no one has stepped up to buy the car and buy everything and continue running it. And again, right. I'm not being mean or critical against no Nissan, Lige, et cetera. But this car was, readily available known to be for sale and ended up going to a vintage racer who will be using it i believe to compete at hsr events um which is which is pretty amazing you know I, I, i hadn't thought of this until we started the discussion i know i'm asking you to speak for someone that isn't you but do you get a feeling jeff that had john been able to or i don't know if he had a desire to but Buy a Cadillac, for example, that he might still be and, and Core might be planning for its second Rolex 24 Daytona with a Cadillac DPI VR, something that is more or less a turnkey prototype? Or do you think the uh, fact that it was kind of custom, something that you could make your own, do you think that was part of the appeal to him with the Nissan?
1: No, I, I don't. I think the ideal thing, and, and this I know, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not guessing on. Is if they would have kept the class, the the class together where DPIS and LMP2 cars could run together, he would have kept his Orica and we would have continued right on, can, where we left off in 18. That would have been the ideal thing for him. He loved that car. It was you know obviously competitive in 18, and I don't know all the politics behind it, but. You know, uh, it might not have been exactly what IMSA wanted, where a, a little privateer team like ours could actually win races and almost win the championship against the factory efforts that might not have been what was ideal for them. So they split the classes. And so, John, you know, yeah, I think if the Nissan put it, th- I know for a fact, John is not sick of racing racing and driving race cars. He loves that. That's his thing. He likes to drive. He likes to own the team. He likes the, all the things that are involved from the debriefs to the strategy, to the, um, the inner workings of the team. He's that's what he, that's why he spends the money to go racing. He loves that. That didn't change. Um, the results, you know, he was kind of in a box. Like, what does he do? He, can't, he really can't run the Nissan again because it's just, it's where it is. And it's, you're not going to, you know, nobody was stepping up to spend the money to, to redesign it and, and make it competitive. And so I think he was like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm in a box. I can't uh, you know, some people have said, Oh, he could go back and run LMP 2 I think he needs to see how that plays out. And, you know, maybe the LMP2 class this year coming up ends up with four, five, maybe six entries and becomes sort of an alternative the way LMPC did in its heyday. And then I think that might appeal to a guy like John again.
0: Well, we're going to keep our fingers crossed that he finds something fun to re-engage with on a regular (laughs) basis. And we're going to keep other appendages crossed while we wait to learn where our pal (laughs) Jeff Brown is going to be engineering. I will say this. I don't know if we're going to have time to do another episode before the end of the year. We will try, of course. But I can tell you that I think this deep dive from one of the, the great race engineers of our generation into a car that certainly could have been more than what it was. Came to life with many limitations and constraints that its competitors did not, and the almost intractable items that kept it from becoming a, a major success. As we hear our cat Rocky complaining in the background, wanting to be fed. Um, <laughs> I hope folks really enjoyed this because this is some real, you know, honest, laid bare, and deeply insightful stuff. We maybe. I hope we can get into more as we do more episodes because there are always those questions, right? And you might be a fan of yeah. whatever, Mark, and you go, oh, boy, why aren't they winning? Why aren't they winning more often? Okay, maybe they got one or two wins this year, but they're really not in the championship frame. Why? What's wrong? The driver's not good enough. They'll pick whatever the thing. Sometimes you find out, you know, <laughs> you can't throw these items into a press release. Uh, right. But there are some very real things Some real hard, uh, hard walls that you keep coming up against that prevent certain cars and certain classes from being world beaters. So fascinating, Jeff. Thank you.
1: Oh, well, it was, uh, I'm a little. I I can tell that story because we're not running the car. I kind of wish that I couldn't tell this story because that would mean that we were making improvements and I don't want people to know what we were up against. But it's it's what it is. And I, you know, uh, again, uh, it, it was just the circumstances we were in and I'm glad I could. You know kind of give everybody an insight of of what goes on. We certainly weren't the only one with struggles and complaints of BOP and not being able to compete the way we wanted to. Everybody else has those same things and and but at least everybody got maybe a little insight into what uh, was involved this year for for us at core
0: mr. Brown, enjoy your holidays here. We're uh, going to post this early in the week following week we're going to have christmas for many folks so i don't think we're going to get an inside the sports car paddock done then not sure if we'll get one done before uh the new year but maybe if i can maybe i'll try and pull together more of the jeff brown makes people smart uh intros to the shows and stack some of those together as a kind of end of the month feature and folks can use that driving to and from whatever holiday engagements Riding trains, airplanes, bicycles, <laughs> right. and, uh, and enjoy kind of a dedicated Jeff Makes a Smarter segment.
1: Cool. I love it. Looking forward to it. Merry Christmas to everybody. And, um, you know, I look forward to doing another one. Just let me know when.
0: One of my true highlights in doing this podcast, and I'm so happy you and I decided to just do it. And here we are, 30 episodes
1: later. <laughs> That's awesome. I can't believe we did 30. Holy moly. It's fun and I really like it the way, you know, it's cool that you just, when it's, when it works for you, text me and it works for me and we get together and do it and there's really kind of no schedule and it's, it's simple, easy and fun to do. So anytime, Marshall.
0: Thank you, my friend.
2: Sitting with me now is WCCO Gerard Niveau. Um here at Bahrain once again um, after a little bit of time away. Um, there's so many topics, Gerard, to talk about So many things um, <laughs> We'll start with calendars um, Before we get into the, what was announced yesterday With the new calendar for 2020-2021 for A little bit of a word for our listeners Many of them are American listening to the Marshall Pruitt podcast About what we have is a bit of an American extravaganza coming up next year We're not going to Brazil, we're going to Texas So tell us, why Cota, why the date change?
3: First of all, the day changed because we had a serious issue with the local promoter. No problem with the city, no problem with the racetrack, but the local promoter was totally in failure, in breach with the article of the contract. And uh, it was impossible for us. This is a responsibility when you bring a paddock and a full championship somewhere, you must guarantee a good delivery of the event, and it was not the case, so... Uh, we took the decision uh, after many warning, many discussion, many uh, recall, many delayed for the payment and everything, we took the decision to to remove the race and we had to find a place to do it to replace in so quickly because we are speaking two months later, more or less. And uh, the choice is very limited. Uh, it cannot be under the North hemisphere because the, due to the, uh, the water condition we say so no Europe. Asia, we were just going out from Asia, so it doesn't make sense to return for the logistic. Middle East, we are doing a big one in Bahrain, so I don't see any other option at this moment. Uh, somebody told me, Kaya but it was too short to set up the event in this uh, gap. So um, we get in touch with the circuit that we knew before, which makes easy when you have just a few weeks to set up an event. Uh, we have all the data, all the information, and... Um, We we keep we have maintained a good relationship with the people from Qatar. Uh, Bobby Epstein has been very uh, understanding, very helpful. He said, "Okay, guys, I will help you," and he he provided us a good model to to do it. And the staff from the circuit is the same, more or less. The people that we have in contact than two years ago, so we know them very well. They know they know us. They know the world very well. So easy to set up the event with that. Same for the team. The garage is a classical circuit. It's fantastic facilities. Very easy. Easy to access, easy to organise, easy to set up So that was a very good option And at the end it makes happy the paddock The, the drivers love this track also So it was, it was good
2: By the time uh, everyone's listened to this I'm sure keen WC fans will know We're going to Monza next season We're going to Kailami We're not going back to Shanghai But we've got a lot of the big key historic races Still on the calendar um, Just quickly g- give us your thoughts on that And particularly um, some, explain some of the changes That have been made um, not just for a fresh fresh start at some of these new venues but, but more for, for the hypercar teams that are coming in and, and delaying the start of the season.
3: Yeah. When you make a calendar, you have several uh, parameters that you have to consider at the beginning. First, always, is uh, the wish from the paddock. Without competitors, you don't have any competition. So we consider the competitors as a client, so we have to make them happy. Uh, and we have to make sure that The solution we provide Is corresponding to the majority of them This is never 100% but to the large majority Uh, Also we have to consider What is the specificity of the season So if you consider 2021 One of the specificity will be the introduction Of the hypercar Le Mans categories uh, Which is a new one Uh, They have a very short time to set up the cars And it will be very tight for them to be ready on time In September So we said okay Sounds good if we start by two races in Europe because it it's provides more time for them to work in between the two races because they can go back immediately to the factory. Valkyrie, that, that, that works in England with Aston Martin. You can have also Toyota in uh, Cologne. So, easy for them to be back and to work on it. Uh, Glickenhausen also. so. So, the idea was clearly to help them on this way. Also... The second thing is we are looking to, to help the team to save money And if you add one Euro- European race and you reduce one overseas race You help them a lot because you save a lot of money And the third point is uh, it was clearly a decision that if we can Because when you are, you are strong enough you can try If you can provide only track with characters and with a link with a sports car on endurance It's a big end value and uh, Monza was on the short list since a long time, especially after the prologue we have made in 2017, uh, where we had a big crowd uh, without any promotion and the prologue is just full laps, so there is nothing very spectacular, but the fans were there, there is a lot of passion in Italy, as you know, for the motorsport and for Ferrari, Ferrari is one of the main actors in GTE with us, huh? definitely, so it was logical. and. Uh, uh, we are were, we were working on it with the Manza Since a few years now And we find a good slot to do it When we decided to cancel uh, uh, Shanghai for the next season All the other tracks are the same uh, If you consider Fuji, Bahrain uh, um, uh, Kayalami uh, Sebring of course and Spa and Le Mans at the end this is really a place where um, we can say that the people can be very uh, happy uh, to see a race for sports car because this is uh, really a place to welcome uh, the sports car and, uh, and the WEC so it makes sense definitely
2: let's talk hypercar because it is coming and it's not long now and we've had a huge very positive bit of news since the last time we sat for, mm-hmm. down for any length of time and that is the Peugeot are coming back um, it was a surprise to a lot of us. Tell me your emotion, your reaction when that happened. That was a big day for this championship, wasn't
3: it? Yeah, but very frankly, when you are a promoter and organizer, you, 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 you have a little bit more information. You're supposed to have more information. So we have a permanent dialogue with, the, with all the manufacturers uh, and uh, we try to be enthusiastic because the idea is to attract the maximum uh, of manufacturers and uh, it took uh, months and months and months to discuss, to obtain a decision, or to, to convince the people or to find just a, a window to do it. And uh, we knew before that Peugeot was very close to arrive because we were the discussion with them. But uh, like you, we have been very happy to see this, this information coming so so quickly. And uh, it, was the, it was the one that we were missing before, just to confirm that this series will be a very existing, a very good one. And uh, now the fact is that we are still discussing with many others, that's the, that's the story on the backstage. And we sincerely hope that you will have uh, some other good announcement in the coming month. that's the idea. But for 20 and for 21 we have an idea now where we go, so that's, that's really important.
2: Has it changed, since, since that announcement, has it changed the perception, do you feel, oh, yeah. of Le Mans hypercar going forward?
3: But I will tell you one thing, it's very easy to understand. Before we have this announcement, the people when we cross the people, they say, Hello, how are you, my friend? It's, it's not too difficult now. And now when you cross the people, they say, Wow, good job, congratulations, and they look very happy. The fact that Peugeot is rejoining the hypercar is back on the stage with us. It's a big value for the credit of the hypercar uh, Le Mans categories. And uh, I think there is interest. And there is, you, you are a journalist, so you know very well, when you when you travel on the social media, on the digital platform, and you see that the fan now, when you ask them, do you want to draw a new car for the future? The, the top of the drawing now, this is about a hypercar, more than any other series, because it inspires a lot of good ideas for the people and uh, the... On the same time a, b- a big hope, so we, we we have to do all the maximum to make sure that these categories will correspond to the dream that the people are doing for for this category. Do
2: you feel like it's a smart decision from Peugeot to delay their entrance for for a couple of years?
3: Oh I don't know when they will arrive very frankly because nobody knows at this moment they are working. You you saw this weekend in the paddock in the Bahrain a few key people from Peugeot inside they have made an initial a provisional plan but you never know anything can happen so let's let them work and you will see when they arrive
2: would they be allowed to come a little bit earlier if they uh, wanted to just no do Le Mans idea. at the end of the season
3: I have, oh, I have no idea but let, let them work and we will see what's going on they are the only people who can answer but this is very early for that
2: so where where does this lead hypercar in the future there's plenty of talk Um, surrounding convergence talks with DPI 2.0, that's still forming. And we've obviously got a new IMSA president over there, so John Doonan, I'm sure, is working overtime to make sure he's up to speed on these things. Where does it go now? How do you see this panning out?
3: If it's a personal vision, uh, we never change. It means that we, we hope and we're trying to do our best to make sure that we can join together no, no more than last week. We were together again with John and with Scott and with Pierre and myself in Stuttgart for the night of the champion with Porsche, and we spend a lot of time to discuss. And we have a meeting very often. We have a permanent dialogue. All respective technical departments are working very close together, and we still have exactly the same hope. It's not the right day to tell you anything today because that's uh, that's is the working on the I would say on the backstage. I guess
2: the key is, is it still a realistic possibility?
3: If it's not, uh, we will never spend so many times to discuss, very frankly, from each side. Mm. So if we are still around the table, it means that there is probably a possibility, a serious possibility.
2: And, And do you feel at this point, knowing what we know now that there is plenty of manufacturer interest on both sides to ensure that if we did go down that route, we would have enough manufacturers who would do both championships and not all just pick and choose the That's the, the idea,
3: because the idea is to, is to oh. get stronger the endurance platform globally. That's clearly the idea. And this is correct to say that few key manufacturers say that we are interested to, to come only if we have the chance to compete in the two main platforms, WEC and IMSA. If you have the chance to race in Sebring or in Daytona and in Le Mans, for example, so we know exactly what they want. So we know what we have to do. The question now is to do it. But before to do it, you have to you have to work, you have to analyze, you have to investigate, you have to take the right decision. Very logically, each 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 party is working to try to protect his own platform to make sure that he will never damage one of the two platforms. And uh, we have to find the right the right mathematical solution let's say the right formula to do it mm. and um, okay but we can say that we, we work very seriously on this subject but this <laughs> is too early to say more
2: What has your experience been like so far since um, John Doonan took over at IMSA as, as president I mean I know him, I've know i known him for many years he's a top bloke but what's he like from, um, from your perspective since he's since he's come uh, in
3: uh, If I understood well the question for, for, for us it's really a good thing because we know him very well he has a real he share with us the real passion with uh, motorsport and sports car in special he loves Le Mans if I understood well and that, that's a good point <laughs> as we love the motorsport in USA and he's uh, not the people that we discovered yesterday we had a relationship with him since many years through the Mazda experience but also uh, when we were visiting the IMSA event he was around and uh, he's a very nice person so I have to say that we feel very comfortable Uh, and on the other hand you have to remember that Scott is not totally uh, out of the game he's still involved for the relationship between Misa and SEO. so just to take the example of the last meeting we had a very constructive discussion and it's it's always a a big pleasure to meet John and to try to work on it and I think I cannot speak on his on behalf of himself but I think that he's, he's sharing the same wish to find a way to to establish something solid together
2: Before I let you go one more question then when we spoke at Le Mans just after that press conference where you announced the regulations and we had um, Aston Martin and Toyota commit you were understandably an incredibly happy man that day bit of relief but mostly happiness um, you were very confident as well that there's going to be momentum and it's going to keep going we've seen Peugeot come now we've got three are you confident there's going to be more if you had to say so now
3: more than after Le Mans Definitely. you're more confident now than after Le Mans more yeah I was after Le Mans already because since you have two you have the chance to demonstrate that you are going on the right trajectory but now I'm more because I f- we feel you have some indicators some parameters some people told me yesterday ah this calendar is fantastic the calendar reflects exactly what is the what is the perception from the partners you have around you when it's working well it's I don't say this is easy, this is never easy. But it's easier to try to set up something very spectacular. When you are in a huge difficulty, this is more, is, is more difficult. Uh, after Le Mans, we understood that the, the hypercar will be there. And uh, you're right, the arrival of Le Mans, is a, is a, of Peugeot, is a good confirmation. And uh, I'm, more confident than, I'm more confident than after Le Mans, definitely, because we feel that there is no good. We are, we are starting on a good trajectory, on a good pace. And uh, we have a solid discussion with few manufacturers and partners, and uh, I think that we have to work. you know nothing uh, happened like this huh? you have to work for sure you have to be very serious, very humble, you have to be careful that you deliver the right technical regulation, which is a job provided by the FI and the aCO You have to make sure that your sporting organization will be well done, and you have to do a good combination between all the different actors in the paddock so we have to work with humility but we feel more comfortable today than uh, 8 months ago
2: Gerard it's always a pleasure thank Thank you you so much for your time thank you CEO of McLaren Racing Zach Brown is joining me now Uh, a very warm welcome to the show Zach Um, there's plenty to talk about um, right now there's so much news in sports cars um and you are a part of these discussions when we're talking about IMSA, we're talking about WC in the future and what the platform looks like at the top of the shop. Um, before we delve into nitty-gritty um, details, uh, I think the best thing would, right now would be to give listeners a general sense of where you stand on hypercar in WC and IMSA DPI 2.0. Uh,
4: well, good afternoon, um you know, McLaren has a long history in uh, various forms of, of motor racing. Uh, Le Mans being a, uh, an iconic part of our uh, history, having won Le Mans in our our debut. We've got a great uh, automotive sports car business that uh, races GT3s and GT4s, and um, so we are uh, very uh, keen to understand. Um, the future direction of of Hypercar and and this DPI 2.0 as it's being referenced to see if there is a um, plan where we can race authentic uh, McLaren technologies uh, around the world with an emphasis on the World Endurance Championship uh, as Le Mans is a series we'd like to uh, race we'd like to go back and try and win and so we're um, kind of working with both uh, WEC and uh, IMSO to understand the, the future direction. And um, whatever we do needs to be uh, fiscally balanced. So um, if we can find a, or they develop a, a racing series where we can race authentic McLarens in a uh, financially attractive way, then we're very, uh, very interested.
2: Yeah, I, I guess the burning topic right now is convergence between the two platforms from IMSO and WC. Um, I've talked to plenty of people about that over the last couple of weeks, and it seems like it's more of a possibility and becoming more of a possibility as time passes. How close do you think we are to that?
4: Um, Ultimately, a better question for uh, Pierre and Gerard and and Jim France, but it feels to me like it's as close uh, as it's ever been. I think uh, there's a desire on both sides of the, the pond to work together. I think they recognize that a global platform is what the manufacturers want. And so if they're uh, able to do that in a, uh, in a way that works for all parties, I think everybody wins. I think uh, historically uh, the rules here in Europe have been uh, much more expensive, and that's been a, a challenge uh, for IMSA. And then I think um, IMSA has a um, uh, less relevance to the manufacturer than the ACO has, and that's been uh, a challenge for the ACO. So if they can converge and create a a fiscally responsible, um, technically authentic platform where the McLarens, the Lamborghinis, the Porsches, the Astons can come in and they feel like you know, we're racing a McLaren um, then I think that's the compromise everyone's working towards and would be uh, hugely successful and I think get a lot of interest from manufacturers if they can blend those two
2: Before I ask you what McLaren's stance would be if convergence happened I'll ask you what, what the stance would be if it doesn't happen, if it if we get two separate platforms like we have now does that rule you out of IMSA and the WC? Um
4: you know, if if we take a look at McLaren Racing, and we've got this great history in multiple forms of, of motorsport. You know, Formula Ones are our, our, our DNA, uh, always has been, always will be. We've recently entered IndyCar, and, and that was really to help uh, ourselves, our partners in the North American marketplace. Um, fiscally, that's a uh, a strong strong program. So we would be looking to enter sports cars to support our our automotive business and our partners that want to go uh, sports car racing uh, our customers uh, that would like to see us uh, go racing and maybe participate uh, in some way shape or form and um, I, I don't think we would enter IMSA only strictly because we feel we already have North America covered so I think this needs to be driven by you know can we get back to the iconic race uh, you know, at Le Mans, that's what's driving our our interest. If there's a global platform, I have no doubt we've got great customers in America that we would probably end up in both racing series. Um, but at this point, I, I don't see us running IMSA only, as that would really be um, dupli- duplicating uh, our North American efforts, which we already
2: have. Mm. So, so uh, well, I say safe to say, is it uh, would it be wise to think that? Um, if McLaren did go for this that they would sit in the WC camp and select specific IMSA races to add to a program um, you know if if there is convergence
4: Um, we haven't thought that far ahead yet I I think it'd be pretty safe to assume you'd want to be at Daytona that's uh, an iconic international uh, race and and is always um, you know a time of the year where it doesn't conflict with uh, what's got going on in, in WEC, um, Sebring, which is currently both on the WEC schedule and the IMSA schedule, you know, same weekend, different races. Um, but I, I think we'd probably more likely end up with some customers uh, racing in so that we might give some, you know, s- certain level of uh, support to.
2: Mm. So you see that as a part of a viable business plan that you could field customer cars, but what does that look like in budget terms for you guys and where do you where do you sit on the budgets of doing all this um because
4: we don't know what the rules ultimately look like yet it's hard to know what that looks like other than we've got a, a lot of customers racing uh mclarens um we have you know great track track cars uh that are derivatives of our road cars um uh, so I have no doubt if we were to get into sports car racing and have a customer element that we've got a lot of customers that like to race our cars, uh, what that would look like yet is
2: too early to tell. Mm. And uh, as for a hypercar program, would you go down the route of designing your own hypercar chassis and racing that, um, or, or would you prefer the option that, that IMSA may have that we're waiting to find out on, which is you know, a common platform, uh, potentially with a spec hybrid system?
4: um don't know until we have the final rules presented to us you know what is important to us is mclaren dna in the race car and that we're in a situation where we can be as competitive as possible so depending on where the rules go if um that's what makes you most competitive then that's what we would want to do at the same time i think we're open-minded to uh chassis platforms if that's some of the areas in which um they can help drive down costs but we you know definitely want a mclaren drive train and things of that that nature so um uh, we're open minded and i think we'll just respond when we see what the rules are what's the most uh meaningful way we could enter
2: mm. both organizers are very clear that they want manufacturers to go a bit further than perhaps what we've seen with dpi in terms of styling cues and making the cars recognizable We've seen the 570s racing, obviously, in GT4, the 720s in GT3. The center's more of a, a, a track car with a road going version. Um, what platform would you use for this, or, or have you made that decision?
4: Uh, ultimately, will be decided by what the final rules are. That's going to drive a lot of our... Uh, but I don't think it would be a, an existing car. You know, you, at the end of the day, you go racing to, to sell the future, So we've got a great uh, product line developed out over um, the next handful of years with automotive, and it would probably be a car within that um, range of future cars, but we're not going to race something that's already uh, in the marketplace. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Taking a step back and looking at the WC in a general sense, we've seen announcements from multiple manufacturers. We know now that Peugeot is coming in at a later date. What do you think about the way the hypercar is going as it stands now does it impress you what is forming I,
4: I think this collaboration uh and convergence has uh is very exciting and has a tremendous uh, opportunity i hope it comes together um because i think everybody will win the fans the manufacturers both weck and and imsa um and i think we're in the uh later stages of finding out of whether it's going to uh
2: uh, happen or not. Mm. Um, and finally, uh, is there a time frame that you guys would like in terms of entering this? Do you have a year in the future that you could see yourselves entering and when do you have to make a decision on that? Or when um, will you make a decision? Yeah,
4: um, we don't have to make... You know, There's no time frame set. We're under no pressure. We've got a lot going on in Formula 1. We we're, we're still have a long way to go we've got uh 21 kicking in which is going to be a, a total landscape change of formula one we've got an indycar program now which is a big commitment which is just getting up and running so um you know we constantly review racing activities it's something that's of of high interest uh to to mclaren but we'll make a time a decision on our time frame that works for us and there is no preset we feel we have to be in by a a certain year uh so we'll first thing we need is the rules to come out and then from there we can properly
2: assess uh when how if fingers crossed that soon zach it's always a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for your time thank you well porsche's head of factory motorsport pascal zalinden is with me now um, as we're getting ready for qualifying in bahrain uh Pascal, I wanted, wanted to ask you about a range of topics, really. Um, but I guess as we're here at an event where you're running GTE cars, let's talk about GTE first. Tell me about the new car and, and your thoughts on what has been a, a stunning sort of debut season for it so far.
5: At the end, for us, uh, it was a dream start. At the end, who dreams to have a better result than uh, two double podium, two pole position, five podiums. just putting two cars on the grid brand new never raced before so really a dream start let's see what is possible if you can continue like this now in WC and our the start will be in Daytona in January for many of us
2: watching it seems a bit remarkable that a car comes in it's new and it's fast and reliable straight away is that a surprise to you guys
5: and then uh, we did a really hard work back at the factory, all the preparation, we did endurance tests. And then we ran over 30,000 kilometers and, uh, and then it's all about preparation. So the car is really fast. We have also to thank all the work also from the FIA and SEOs. They do a remar- remarkable job looking at uh, the characteristics of the car and doing BOP. At the end, if you look at the races, it was never so close all together in one or two tenths with uh, aston martin and ferrari so great job from everyone involved
2: we know that you've been doing a lot of tire testing and stuff to do with michelin um, and in gte obviously the free manufacturers race with specific tires for their cars you're tire testing here on monday how, how much gain can you get from a development program um, with michelin if everyone's using the same brand
5: then it's all about adapting the tyres the best for your car. So it's not only about lap time, not being the quickest on one lap. We have to do double stints because we have limited number of tyres over the, the length of the race. So for example, here we have 6.5 sets of tyres for eight hours. So we have to do double stint at one point. And there you need to be the quickest at the end of the double stint. That's how you can win races. And uh, also here... You have a temperature, high temperature during the afternoon at the start of the race, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you drive into the night until 11 in the, in the evening. So cold conditions. So you have to have a, always the right tyres for all these conditions. And that's a hard work with Michelin.
2: Before I ask you briefly about America, um, we had the calendar yesterday for next season in WC with some changes, uh, with Monza and Kyle on and Shanghai off. For Porsche, where, where does that leave you guys feeling?
5: At the end, we are really positive about the calendar. At the end, uh, with uh, Monza, one more European race on uh, a track which has a lot of history and the middle of the city, so there will be lots of fans there. And Kialami, uh, at the there was the first race this year with the IGTC going back to Kialami. It was a great success, and I'm sure world championship going there will be even bigger.
2: Yeah, and it has links with Porsche, right? The, yes. the circuit in Kialami, so it must be an important market for you guys to visit and circuit.
5: Yeah, for us, it's a really traditional circuit. The circuit is owned by the Porsche Importer, which is uh, also great for us. So we'll be feeling like home going back to there.
2: Yeah. Now, IMSA, obviously, we're going to debut the, the car that we've seen in the WC at the start of this season. We'll get its first run out in January at Rolex. I'm sure you're, you're feeling confident it's going to hit the ground running in the same way it's done here.
5: Yeah, for sure. at then uh, last summer, we did a 30-hour test without any issue. So 24 hours for Daytona. Car should be ready. Teams did quite a few tests. Also one in Daytona. Now we'll go get head straight after the Christmas holiday on the 1st of January. All the team will go to Daytona, prepare the race with the raw, and really looking forward to it.
2: And so all the IMS drivers have had time in the car?
5: Yes, everyone tested from the endurance test, but also through some tests in America, in Sebring, Daytona, and um, Road America
2: and you're gunning for four cars at Le Mans again next year. Um, we enjoy seeing the Porsche fleet coming over, and you've had great successes, obviously, recently. Um, what does that tell us about the commitment that Porsche has to Le Mans? I mean, we, we, we know that GT numbers are a bit down at the moment, but you're still, you're still eager to go back with four cars.
5: And then uh, Le Mans is a big tradition for Porsche, and uh, next year, I'm sure Corvette will come back. So we'll be minimum four manufacturers fighting, and you can be sure it will be a sprint race from the beginning to the end. And we are really happy to our um, works team from US coming here in Le Mans. Will be a nice fight for between our two works team, but also against all three other manufacturers.
2: To all the fans at home who are looking at what we have in GT now, um, we've fewer, fewer cars on both sides of the Atlantic. What would you say the future holds for the category? Are you confident that it's sustainable long-term when you consider what we've got with the top classes and how they're changing in, in the championships?
5: And then if you look at uh, the fights on track from uh, six cars involved in both sides of the Atlantic, at the end there are great fights and that's what the fans want to see. And uh, as long as it's like this, it's... Uh, it's exactly what we want to have, fights against the brands. We are fighting also on the road, really closely on track. So really looking forward to the future.
2: Do you feel like the customer ranks in GTE will continue to grow? Because we've seen big numbers in ELMS, we've seen big numbers here. Um, do, you, do you feel that will, that will continue to grow?
5: Yes, the interest is even getting bigger and bigger. And um, at the end, it's also a good sign for GTE. I think that in Le Mans, will be more than 50% of the field like the last year's and uh, really impressed and really happy also to see that uh, gt is so wealthy do you have
2: a orderly queue forming for customers wanting to race this new car i mean surely there must be a lot of interest after after what it's done so far this season in the in the WEC. So
5: there's definitely a lot of interest let's see how many cars we will get on the grid but for sure we'll sell 10 of them until the summer
2: yeah, so is that your what's the maximum you're prepared to build is it 10 or yes. are you going to extend that further in the future the
5: target is uh, 10 because we see that there is a market for 10 cars to race and that's what we want we want to sell the car to be racing
2: mm. last time we were here in Bahrain with the WC Porsche was obviously fighting at the front um, and I want to ask a few questions about the formulation of the top class that we've got in WC hypercars cars progressing IMSA DPI, uh, DPI 2.0 is, is still forming um, First of all, what do you make of Le Mans hypercar? We've seen the regs fully published now. We've seen three manufacturers commit. We've seen a couple of other smaller smaller outfits join it too. What, what does Porsche think of it?
5: And then uh, from Porsche side, we are fully committed to GTE. For sure, we are still looking what's going on with the regulation. They are uh, interesting, but at the moment, uh, it says we have no plan to go in hypercar. And
2: there's obviously a talk of convergence between DPI 2.0 and WC, and you know, I'm... Speaking to you yesterday and seem to think that, that that's a good idea from Porsche's perspective. Uh, so, I'm right, so that you, you would you would like that to happen, that would work at, for you guys.
5: At the end, if uh, you can build one race car and run both sides of the Atlantic, that's what we do with the GT So, second step would be just to have a look, a further look at the costs. If you can really build one car for low cost and race both sides of the Atlantic, it's definitely an option we'll have to look into it.
2: So is that a sticking point for Porsche? You, you, you wouldn't commit to either championship if you could only race one car in one championship. Would you only ever commit if it's one car for two championships?
5: At the end, it's always uh, cost-driven and what do you get out of it. And at the moment, we are really happy with our program as we are fighting against the brands we are, fi- we are driving against in the road, on the road car and uh, market and um, we are happy to be in the American market which is important for us but also in Europe and the tradition to go to Le Mans which is the biggest race in the world.
2: Is it going to have a big positive effect on the GTE um, side of things when we do get hypercar and we have got factories fighting at the front surely that the interest levels in the championship will grow or, or is that negative because it's going to take the spotlight away from GTE Pro a little bit than it has been the last couple of years?
5: I think the spotlight was always also in the the top category, but uh, GTE, at the end, if the fight stays as close as they are now, spotlight will also be on there, and it's good for the championship, which is also good for us.
2: Fantastic. Well, thanks for your time, Pascal, and I hope to speak to you soon.
5: Thank you. Well, I've got John
2: Gore from Aston Martin here with me at Bahrain, um, head of qualifying. I want to talk a bit of IMSA. I think that's a oh, yes. burning topic for us Very at the moment. Very happy to talk about IMSA. Yeah. Um, Very excited by IMSA. Um, well, give us some overall feelings. I mean, we, we know now that there are going to be a couple of GTD cars on the grid at Daytona. Um, this is spreading
6: your wings, isn't it, with the new car? Yeah, no, I mean, America's really um, starting to happen now. I mean, there's going to be, I think, over more than 10 GT4 cars racing in America next year. Um, some in IMSA um, in the Pilot Challenge, but also quite a few in PWC so it's encouraging and yeah I mean we've been looking to get GT3 car and, uh, and GTD car in Daytona for a long time but as you know it's basically factory racing and very expensive um, but delighted with Heart of Racing and Ian James has put together a great programme there um, and um, some great drivers I mean they're going to be announced next week who's going to be in that car but obviously Alex will be in the car Rabiris um, and he's a real I think real talent for the future um, probably not recognised everywhere right now but it'll be really interesting to see how he does against um, you know one of the factory drivers I'm sure will be in the car as well um, so it'll be a really good strong line-up um, and I really, you know, I think Ian's done a really, really good job commercially off the track um, and the team he's putting together and we'll give him as much support as we can uh, and then yeah, delighted to be back with PDL as well um, and Matt and Pedro mm. and back in the car which is great along with Ross so a mixture of the old team and the new team um, and, yeah, there's a lot of unfinished business there for quite a lot of people. And, hey, it's a hugely competitive series. The coldest place in the world at the middle of the night in Daytona, as you well know. Mm. Uh, or can yes. be. And, and can be the wettest place in oh, the world <laughs> in the middle of the night. Oh, my word. No protection in the pit lane. And um, really cold, but um, everybody wants to go there. And it, it's, the, it's the race and the racing that I get asked most by our team to put programs together for, mm. um, which is America and Daytona especially I mean all the guys need to leave they need to leave their families between Christmas and New Year to fly out get all the kit organised and be there at the roar and there is, everyone on the team wants to do it they have to turn people down um, so it is the racing and um, the races that everyone wants to be at yeah. so delighted we're back so a lot of the listeners to the Marshall podcast have been eagerly anticipating
2: an Aston presence in, you know, in the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship for a while now and you've got two Give them a sense of just how... Because it is a challenge to get a programme like that together. Oh, get huge. a base set up in IMSA. You've obviously got things like... Ma- just things like manufacturer fees alone It's difficult yeah, to find a budget yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. How, how tough has the process been getting to this point?
6: Well, you see how long it's taken. I'll tell you how tough <laughs> it is. Um, you know, as I say, it's, it's, it's world-class racing at the highest level in IMSA. Um, you've got to have absolutely everything in place... Um, or you know you'll just not be competitive at the track, and the last thing you want to do is turn up with an effort that's not fully thought through and done properly. Um, it will always come down to what happens after the full course yellow, won't it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that's why people love that style of racing. It's, it's unique in the world nowadays that it's still like that, um, and it, you know it's cutthroat, hard door-to-door racing, and everybody wants to be involved in it. Um, but it takes a long time to put together, and you need, you need um, everything to go in your favour. You need um, a lot of dots to join up. Um, you know, commercially it's tough, uh, operationally it's tough, but it's the race that everybody wants to do. And it's a really important market for Aston Martin. I mean, it's more than a third of the market, it's a significant market for the Vantage um, road car, um, and it's really exploded across the last year. So really important from a brand perspective to have presence across there as well. So it was definitely an objective.
2: Do you feel the Vantage GT3 will suit uh, the Daytona Speedway with its you know, sort of unique characteristics? <sighs>
6: I mean, it, it, I mean it should do. I mean it suits every other circuit. So it's just you know just finished out in Kailami. It's pretty much you know within a few tens of anyone. Obviously, there's a. Um, there's a different balance of performance process across there. And um, a different tyre,
2: something else to get used to.
6: Yeah, but it's Michelin. Um, so it's probably the same tyre we race on in um, the Le Mans Cup um, and the Asian Le Mans series, which the car is really nice on. The drivers really they, you know, they prefer that tyre versus the Pirelli tyre, mm. or the old Pirelli tyre from last year. I think the new Pirelli tyre for next year, the guys I've tested, they really quite like. So if it's the same spec of tyre, which I think it is, then it should suit the car fine, Um as I say, they've got a new balance of performance process but again, the car's been well tested um, in their in their wind tunnel and on their dyno. Um, I think they probably do have the best balance of performance process in systems in the world. Um, so I will help them get all the right data in the roar and, and hopefully we'll be right there. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult race because you've got, to, you've got to stay in the game until the last three or four hours, haven't you? I mean, uh, I remember back last time we were there, I think it was 15, it ran four hours, green flag to the end, which is really unusual. But um, you just got to be there at the end of the race um, and have the right guy in the car for the right moment and have the car in the right condition um, to be able to have a chance to, to run to the flag.
2: Moving on to GTA, what's the... I've got to ask you about GTLM and your thoughts on that. Um, it, it's a class that has taken a hit on numbers, but there is a new new car, at least, for, for the fans to really get behind with, from Corvette. Were you looking at, at doing any stuff in IMSA? With, 100%, with the
6: yeah. Car? 100%, you know, and we never stop looking. You know, love to be back at IMSA with um, GT Limo. Um, um, you know, I did try to convince Paul to do both, actually. Would, would, he, could have, he could have driven both cars. Yeah, at the same time. Um, yeah, but... Um, yeah, you know, that's quite a big commercial <laughs> commercial number but no, I mean Aston I've got a big aspiration to be back racing in IMSA um, you know, Pro Drive, Aston Martin Racing absolutely have as well um, but it's just all down to numbers isn't it you know, so it's, it's as expensive to race in IMSA as it is WEC um, from a GT Le Mans perspective um, but 100% we'd love to be there and the team and the drivers would love to be there as well so you know, we'll never stop Trying to um, open that door to make that happen, um, and, but the great news is we're back for a couple of races this year in America, aren't we? You know, mm. even albeit it's not to IMSA regulations, but um, we're um, we're sad to lose Brazil, um, but um, Cota and Zebring's pretty good. Mm. And
2: yeah, factoring in everything, like what we've what we've seen in terms of uh, hypercar news, with um, stuff surrounding IMSA's top class. And what we've seen in the current GTE fields, you know, uh, across the Atlantic on both sides, where, where do you see the future of GTE?
6: What do you think? What do you feel about it now? Well, I think it's proper manufacturer racing, isn't it? You know, Porsche versus Ferrari versus Aston versus Corvette is amongst the best manufacturer racing in the world right now, um, and you, you know, I, th- I think that will continue. I think that will continue. You know, so um, I think it is very stable. Um, there's good rules and regulations um, there's good, good processes on balance of performance um, that allow everyone the opportunity to win if you, if you, you're, if you execute correctly um, and it's proper racing, I mean whether you race against 12 cars or um, 6 cars at the start, the reality is at the end of the race you're probably only racing 3 or 4 anyway, that's always the story, even when there was 10 cars the last few years in WEC, it always came down the last 2 hours to 3 or 4 cars um, and you know, that's the same right now here, you know. So the reality is, it's not that it's not. In, it doesn't feel any different from mm-hmm. a racer's perspective. Um, to achieve the win, you still have to do exactly the same thing. <laughs> um, so, so the commitment from Aston is still there, long term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you know, we, there's a long term contract in place, and um, there's nothing that I know um, that would change any of that wonderful
2: thanks for your time John really appreciate it as always